Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutam Tamang Sandam Namasami. Since GPS isn't going to help us get to the gate of the deathless, maybe it's good for us to understand the value of an old-fashioned map. It's an important instrument to have a guide, to have directions, but also to have a reference point. It may not be an address in this case. There's no number and no street name. But there definitely is a direction and there is a way that the Buddha expounded for us to arrive at this place, which isn't a place, at this state, which isn't a state. Somebody asked me, what is this essence that you mentioned? It's not something that we can describe. The Buddha really presented it to us in terms of negatives, of what it's not, rather than what it is. Because what it is, is not something that can be described in words, in language. It can only be known intuitively through our own conscious purification, consciousness that is purified, that is awakened, and that can penetrate through beyond language, beyond convention, beyond words, beyond the mental, physical process that we're familiar with, beyond worldly ways, worldly aims and values cannot guide us to this understanding. It's an understanding. We cannot know it by concretizing it in any way but we can know the result. And the result is an unshakable peace. It's going beyond suffering of this realm, suffering of any realm. It's reaching the freedom from every kind of suffering. When the Buddha's foster mother became a bhikkhuni, there was a wonderful teaching that he presented to her. She was the very first bhikkhuni in this Buddha's dispensation. According to our ancient scriptures, there's a whole legacy of Buddhas, 28, 28 Buddhas. And in in every Buddha's dispensation of eons and eons, and it might have been Who knows where the human realms were in those days. It might have been on a different planet. We don't have to believe these things. But one thing we can know for certain is that these truths are available universally for all human beings. And there are those who have penetrated through to higher knowledge that is timeless. So these kinds of beings can have knowledge of different periods when there were other Buddhas who taught the same thing. 
whenever the conditions came together in past ages, eons and eons of times, then they were able to present, Buddha would appear and present these teachings in the same way. And there was apparently always an order of monks and an order of nuns. Mahapajapati Gotami, the Buddha's own stepmother, was the first bhikkhuni in this era. And she appeared 2,600 years ago. It's a very long time ago. But what he taught her is no less valuable for us today. And if we think that we can repair the world now, and we contemplate what was happening at the time of the Buddha, he couldn't repair the world of his day. That wasn't the purpose of his coming into existence. But it was to start the wheel of Dhamma turning, to keep it turning for those who had little dust in their eyes. This is really important for us to understand. Before I became a nun, I worked in impoverished communities where malnutrition was rife, where people had no clean water, no access to education. And I wanted wanted to make it all okay. Feed the hungry, get them good shelter, schools, health clinics. You know, I was so keen, so inspired very idealistic. And then I saw the corruption of the world and I also saw the limitations of the world. And then I realized that the first thing I had to do was purify my mind. And I don't mean to say that one cannot work for the betterment and the liberation of all beings. But we have to come from a place of understanding as well. And at least, like here, be cultivating the path ourselves. Otherwise, we can get very confused and create more confusion through our efforts. And we can be influenced by the corruption that is happening around us. And we can become very discouraged by it, even depressed. What the Buddha understood was there is karma. All of us come into this world from lifetimes of creating karma. And here we are again. We don't realize that. The tree doesn't stop at the earth. It has very deep roots. All we see of the tree is from the bottom of the trunk up. But at least a third of the tree is under the ground, isn't it? We only see what's here now. We don't see the deep past, the long ago deeds. But not all of us come to this existence with little dust in our eyes. Many people come bearing heavy loads of karma, heavy, and get caught up in samsara and create more karmic load and are reborn in a worse state, a similar state, 
or in a better state according to our actions and speech, our deeds and our states of mind. This is one of the most important principles of understanding the Four Noble Truths, that there is suffering, its origin, the possibility for us to realize a cessation of suffering and a map of how to do that. There's a map. It's called the Eightfold Noble Path. Are you all familiar with that? Who isn't? Oh, that's amazing. One person. You can read about it. (laughs) I might get to it by and by. But right view is the very first limb of that path. And most of us don't see properly. We see through the eyes of greed, hatred, and delusion. Do you ever look into a microscope in a laboratory when you were in seventh or eighth grade? What did you see? You saw things that you can't see with your naked eye. Amazing, fascinating. All these little bubbles, colored bits bobbing along. And you're looking with this powerful microscope. Now they have microscopes that can look even more deeply into molecules and atomic particles. This is the whole world of nanos, which I only heard about a few years ago. And because of nanoparticles, we can have instruments like cell phones, I think. Am I totally off here? (laughs) (laughs) The whole circuitry gets smaller and smaller and smaller, inconceivably, invisible. It's so tiny, it's completely invisible. Even that microscope that we thought was so powerful 20, 30, 40 years ago is nothing compared to what's possible now. But the Buddha, before there were microscopes, before there were telescopes, he knew about these infinitesimally small microcosms. And he knew about those infinitely distant macrocosms through the power of his mind long ago. And the Buddhas before him they were able to develop the full potential of this computer which has created all the computers in the world and still cannot be simulated. No one can simulate this computer of our human mind. The power of Dhamma gives us the ability to see into the nature of mind and matter. The true nature not the illusory, delusory, perceptually distorted nature, but the actual nature. And we don't see it with microscopes. Microscope won't see that. It will see atomic particles and nanoparticles circling around. There's little solar systems in there. These tiny particles circling, orbiting around each other. They're almost like a mirror of the actual solar system, which is only a tiny fragment of huge systems in the universe, indescribable. What are we? We are actually nothing. We are infinitely small. And we make a big deal about 
our likes, our dislikes, our problems, our joys, our pleasures, our pains. But it's a nothing, it's a blink in this vast, vast system of worlds, of light years. And the truths that the Buddha discovered are universal. They are based on laws, laws that we only learn by stopping the frenetic movement of the mind to bear witness to that intuitive knowledge that we get a glimmering of when we sit down to meditate. And the more we focus this computer, this mind-body field of energy. Do you remember when you were a kid, you had a magnifying glass, and you held it out over a piece of paper, and the sun shone on it, and if you held your hand steady enough, then it would burst into flames. Right? And then you'd come running into the house with your burning piece of paper. Mommy, mommy, look! And she would say, get it out of the house. (laughs) You'll start a fire, silly. Right? The fire of Dhamma is different than the fire of delusion and the fire of greed and the fire of hatred. The fire of Dhamma burns away our blindness and lights, brightens the mind so that we can see with this penetrating wisdom. We see into the true nature of things. What is that true nature? The best map that you can use is one that you discover in your own heart. You discover it by following the guidelines, and then walking the path yourself and seeing, ah, it's true. Again and again you discover by seeing into your own heart and your own mind, yeah, my mind is so full of garbage. And then you sweep it away and you, ah, it's an emptiness, it's a clarity. It's a brightness. And there's no me. It's just what it is. And you go further into that, sweeping away the lifetimes of rubbish and like polishing the mirror. Have you ever looked at a hologram? You look at it, you look at it, and you see some shapes. It looks like a bird or an airplane. But when you keep looking at it and you relax your vision out jumps some other shape it's a three-dimensional thing that leaps off the paper we have to look with a relaxed kind of vision and we have to look at it from our belly not from our heads and then it just appears and once you've seen it then it's always there you always can figure out how to get back to that. It's similar, not quite like that. Much more miraculous, much more mysterious is the Dhamma. When we stumble upon this vast space within our hearts, where there is no more holding or clinging, there's no more jealousy or or selfishness, there's no more resentment, regret, there's no bitterness, There's no complaining. 
There's no anger. There's no fear. No trepidation. Insecurity. There's no self-criticism. I can't do this. People don't like me. There's no wanting to be anything. There's no not wanting to be anything. There's none of that. Then what is there? We each of us have to go the mile, the 10,000 miles, the million miles. In here, for as long as it takes, one lifetime, two lifetimes, we're in it for good. Because it's possible. Because we can do it. But the map, we have to find it for ourselves. That's why it's called Eipasiko. Come and see for yourself. Eipasiko. Through direct experience. Not through what other people tell you. The Buddha's aunt became a nun. She was a queen. She lived in a palace. And one of the theories as to why the Buddha hesitated to give her the ordination was because she lived this life of royalty. And she was an older woman already. Although in those days, I think 45, 50 might have been old. Then what are we? We're ancient. (laughs) But she was so determined that she came with a group of ladies-in-waiting from the palace, barefoot and exhausted, walking the roads of India back in the 5th century B.C. What would you call them? Roads, muddy tracks. And arriving where the Buddha was staying, she had shaved off her hair and was wearing the robe and she asked him for the ordination. How could he refuse? It is said that he hesitated, but I believe that his hesitation was a protection. Best to live as householders and practice at home. But when she showed her determination and her willingness to endure this kind of hardship, then he agreed. And what a heroic thing. So she set an example for us to leave behind, to let go all these accumulations, worldly things that we're cosseted with, that we're possessed by. If we don't leave these things, they will leave us. The cars will rust. The things that are already being built for obsolescence will become obsolete. The pictures will fade, just like our senses. The eyes get dim. Eventually, we can't hear anymore. Teeth are falling out. Now we get caps. Plutonium teeth? No. What are they made out of? Titanium. They're not nuclear. (laughs) We have false teeth. The hair is getting dyed even when there isn't any there. And we try. We're still propping it all up as if it can look good when it's falling apart. And we refuse to accept that it's all falling apart, falling down to the earth element, 
the fire element, the air element, the water element, the elements are returning to the elements and we continue to bandage them up together and make them try to look like what we looked like when we were young. Why? Because we are still falsely identified with these elements as what we are. As long as we do that, how can we really discover the mystery of the Dhamma? If we refuse to stand up in truth, just the way we are, exactly as we are, falling apart, all spotty, hair falling out, people still painting their lips when the lips aren't there anymore. (laughs) Instead of just being as we are and seeing that the beauty is within us, the beauty is within us, can we be honest? We're Dhamma practitioners. We shave our heads. This is a big statement, especially for women. Imagine shaving your head. Just imagine for a minute. Shaving your head and dressing up like this, wearing a robe, and walking outside on the street with a bowl and not being worried about what people think of you. Not trying to live up to other people's expectations and opinions. For us to really find this map within us and stand up to the truth, we want the truth to be revealed to us, but we're not willing to reveal ourselves to the truth. We're still putting on masks. Think about, contemplate how you live and what you do to still dress it all up and make it look presentable according to what values, according to social norms and standards. But I do urge each of us who are on this Dhamma path seriously intent to understand the truth of what we are, to give that up once and for all. Stop trying to dress up things that aren't real and pretend that they're real. Give up these pretenses. If we don't renounce the world, at least in these ways, then we can't do this investigation into truth properly. We can only do it halfway. Halfway doesn't get us the truth. It just gets us halfway. It doesn't even get us halfway. It doesn't keep us on the path. The world will whisk us away very quickly. And whatever new contraption is invented will be the first ones lining up to buy it. But then we'll download Dhamma books. And that's our commitment. We're going to read and study the Dhamma and, and go to all the retreats. But we're still dressed up in worldly ways. I don't mean clothes. I mean the way we conduct our lives, the way we spend our time, the way we speak, the way we eat, the way we regard our bodies, the way we take refuge, what we take refuge in. So the Buddha said to Mahapajapati, 
2,600 years ago. The qualities of Dhamma that we will taste and know will be when we understand. They are qualities that lead us to dispassion, not to passion. To being unfettered, not fettered. That means unburdened, not burdened. Burdened by possessions, burdened by self-view. Self-view means what's the body look like? Self-view is what do my friends think of me? What do I think of myself? All these kind of opinions that we hold on to. But do we know the Dhamma, the truth of what we are? How complex are we? Or how simple can we be? The quality that leads to shedding, not to accumulating. How much shopping are you going to do next month? Why? For what? What are you buying? What are you accumulating? Or how much shedding can we do? I'm not saying be monks or nuns, but why not move in that direction? Why not start giving away all these things that we're so attached to? The joy of giving, the joy of practicing selflessness, generosity like we spoke of yesterday, is giving away these things that we hang on to, that clutter our lives. Find people that you really appreciate and give them away while you can. Otherwise, they'll end up in big plastic bags when you're dead or when you have to go to a retirement home because you won't be able to bring them with you. We should start downsizing now. This is what this path is about. It's downsizing. The first thing to downsize is our ego. How do you downsize the ego? Well, this is the map. These qualities that we need to develop are also those that lead to contentment, not to discontent. This is where meditation practice comes in. The four right efforts of developing gratitude and contentment in the present moment. If we can live content moment by moment, then we'll develop a joy that is contagious. Just by remembering the blessing of one breath, by sharply seeing the breath rising from moment to moment, from in-breath to out-breath, from the beginning, the middle, the ending, and then what is the beyond the breath? The breath takes us to its reflex image in the mind, brightness and clarity. Focusing and dedicating ourselves to the breath, focusing on it and being present for it, is a renunciation. Right there, we've left the palace. We've gotten off our throne. We're no longer CEOs and egos. The only thing we're in charge of, that we're chief of, is the mind. We're directing and guiding the mind to the present moment. Not with control, but giving up the world. If we give up, things, we find ourselves free, that's already a freedom. 
free to devote our energy, our time, our strength to purification of the mind, of the heart. Little by little, we've been letting go of the world. Now, we can happily come here on a Saturday meditating and listening to the Dhamma instead of watching TV or playing games on the internet. We have enough wisdom to do this instead. That's because we've let go a lot. So this letting go is fundamental. Modesty, the quality that leads us to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement. The quality that leads to contentment, not to discontent. We've spoken about that. The quality that leads to seclusion, not to craving company. Being able to be with ourselves and see the spinning mind, the busy mind, until it becomes so still that we realize the whole world is within us. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do but this. There's no one to meet except this moment. And in that moment we find everyone. All that we need to find is there. Because we let go of the ego. Then, then when we return to the world and to each other, we can really be with each other without wanting. It's not a bargaining. You be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. You make me happy and I'll make you happy. There's no more codependency. We're not supporting each other's weaknesses. There's no more debt. We come to each other the way we come in front of the truth. More empty, more pure, more honest. And we love each other just the way we are. Wrinkled, bent, shriveled up, dysfunctional. Whatever we are, we accept that. Because we become spiritual friends. And we support each other on this path. We also can be friends to everyone in the world, but we have to be wise. Not to associate with fools, but that doesn't mean to be cruel or mean. To be kind, but to keep a distance, keep a boundary. We have to keep boundaries. We can't be foolish. We have to be wise in how we associate with the world. Otherwise, those people will overwhelm us. If we're not strong enough, like a young tree, it needs stakes, right? Otherwise, any big wind will just blow it down. This is why we keep company of spiritual friends, and then more and more we become strong enough to practice on our own. First, we have to do our duties. We have to practice Dhamma, fulfill our commitments, do our duties in the world, and slowly build up these qualities to be strong enough, focused enough, independent enough, free enough from worldly taints, from the floods of greed and hate, ill will and aggression, delusion and wrong view in the mind, that we can sit and face the truth honestly. To do this, we need the quality of persistence, not laziness. 
we need to be continuously doing this, not just once a week or once every two weeks or even once a day, but 24-7 if we can. Four postures. And with sila, with the precepts, definitely 24-7. And the last quality that he mentioned was not being a burden. Not being a burden is very important for us as monks and nuns. It's quite a fine line that we have to walk. Not to be a burden to others because we're dependent. We can barely do anything without relying on other people to help us because our rule is so strict. But we cannot be a burden. If we become a burden, then we're not holding this training properly. Not to become a burden is not to complain. All these other qualities lead to that contentment. So if you hear the vacuum cleaner while you're sitting, watch the complaining mind. Well, it's so noisy here. This is my one day of retreat in a month. And they're running the vacuum cleaner during the best sitting. I don't like this sangha and this situation. These people don't have their act. You know, it's a complaining mind. (laughs) Just see how you're creating a burden when people have worked so hard, tirelessly, to create the conditions. But you know what? This is samsara. It never was and it never will be. Perfect. If we're looking for perfection in samsara, then we haven't understood the directions. And we don't have the map yet. We haven't figured it out yet. So don't create a burden for yourself and others by believing your complaining mind. Stop the vacuum cleaner. It's making so much noise in my mind. But listen to that. It's not beautiful. The noise doesn't know that it's noisy. It's only the way the mind holds it that is noisy. So where is the beginning of suffering? The suffering is not out there. As much as we want to blame worldly conditions, we have to take responsibility for where it begins. It begins here. It also ends here. That's the beauty. This is not a pessimistic teaching. This is the most sublime, most promising, most fulfilling path available. You can follow any highway. You can follow any airway. You can follow any subway. But no way will deliver us to the gate of the deathless like the middle way. But don't believe me got to do it and find this out yourselves. I'm just here to ring the bell and remind you. <laughs>